Hey, if this is your first time listening to the show, you might want to go back and listen to the episode before this one. It'll make more sense that way. Here's producer Caitlin Ash. One misty morning when I was visiting Wise County, Virginia, I went to see a source I'd been talking to for months. We met at a sawmill in the mountains. We've got a shop in here. We, can you walk and talk? Yeah. His name is Bucky Culbertson. He's showing me around the old family lumber company. Bucky says back in the early 2000s, they had so much business, it was hard to keep up. Oh, it was thriving. We were delivering stuff in, like I said, in Lakeland, Florida, up into Indiana, um, Tennessee, Georgia. It was fun. But times have changed for Bucky's family business. There's just one employee now. It's Bucky's 62-year-old dad. He's driving a loader, bringing wood to the chipper. You can hear him in the distance. I wanted to hang it all up. My father wanted to hang on to it, and so we, we hung on to it partially. But if it had been left up to me, there wouldn't be nothing here. Is it sad to sort of come back here? It is, a little bit. I mean, it's, it's nothing what it used to be. What did Bucky's business in was not, for the most part, globalization or regulations. It was workers, or lack of workers. We can't find them at all. It's very, very hard. When he was lucky enough to find them, they'd show up the first few days okay. But soon they'd be... Fall asleep while standing up, um, irritable, or just not showing up. At some point, Bucky realized they were high. Pain pills, yeah, at that time. Back then, Bucky had about 20 employees. On bad days, he would have to send home as many as three or four workers. Then he'd have to make up lost productivity by working extra hours, seven days a week, up to 16 hours a day. It just got to be such a headache, I just wanted to go work my hours and go home. And it wasn't just Bucky's employees who were getting hooked on pain pills. It was his friends. It's common for most people to consume alcohol and and, and attend parties and and drink and stuff, which is what I've done. And I guess... None of my family have ever been on drugs, so it was easy for me to stay away from them. But a lot of my friends didn't make that decision, and they chose that path, and I have lost cousins and family members and close friends that are no longer with us because of it. By 2005, Bucky had had enough of the lumber business. Due to the stress and and liabilities and the different problems of not being able to keep employees that were sober and that would show up for work, and to take that part of the stress out of my life, Bucky decided to start a new career, fighting the very problems that were bringing down his business. I got out of it and got into police work. So police work is less stressful than running three businesses and worrying about It was time, yes. This is Bucky's third career. When you look back at his other jobs, you can trace the booms and busts of Appalachian, Virginia. He drove a coal truck straight out of high school, but then he got laid off. So he went to work in the region's other defining industry, lumber. And when that didn't work out, he moved on to another big industry, drugs, or drug enforcement. Bucky worked his way up to a job as a narcotics investigator, mostly working undercover, buying drugs and guns. All I wanted to do was work narcotics because of all my friends that have overdosed and died or they're living in in poverty because of that addictions. And it, it affects you. It does. Welcome back to the uncertain hour, where the things we fight the most about are the things we know the least about. I'm Chrissy Clark, senior correspondent for Marketplace's Wealth and Poverty Desk. This season, we're asking the question, 
How Do Drug Epidemics End? We're returning to Wise County, Virginia, which is in a region that's considered to be ground zero of the opioid epidemic. And we're looking back to past epidemics for answers. A lot has changed since the crack epidemic of the 1980s. Back then, there was widespread agreement from both Democrats and Republicans that the laws needed to get tougher. Today, the opposite is true. Both sides have worked to roll back some of those same policies. But in many ways, we're still using the same tools to fight the opioid epidemic. Undercover officers are still making drug buys, and drug sellers and users are still filling prisons and jails. This approach has a lot of costs, both in terms of money and in terms of human costs. So our question, is it working? And if it isn't, what do you do instead? Our producer, Caitlin Esch, reported our stories from Wise County. Here's Caitlin again. And a warning, this episode does have a few swear words in it. Bucky's riding shotgun in a big black truck with tinted windows. We're driving. It's a little curvy two-lane road. On these windy mountain roads. No guardrails. To the town of Appalachia in the Virginia coal fields. Used to, this town would be completely full of nothing but coal trucks going and coming. There are a lot fewer of those trucks now. There's a lot of crystal meth in here, in this area. It's funny because it just looks like a sleepy... It's not. They're just not awake yet. Bucky's wearing dark sunglasses and a hat. His facial hair is always changing. This day, he has a goatee. There are rumors about the lengths Bucky goes to to maintain cover in a county of 40,000 people. According to some people, Bucky wears wigs, a charge he denies. It's really hard to work undercover in this area because so many people do learn about you, so you have to be careful and try to navigate through who may know you, who may not know you. We pass by a cluster of apartments where Bucky spent a recent night hanging out undercover, talking to residents, gathering information. It's quiet now, but that night was pretty raucous. In this place, they were screaming and uh, throwing stuff off the balconies, people spinning out, driving up on the curb. I mean, it was crazy. There are some good people. Oh, yeah, here. there are a lot of good people that live here. That voice that piped up, that's Matt. He's driving. Matt doesn't talk much. Matt, what do you do? Same thing he does. Same thing. <laughs> yeah. That's about the longest response I got out of Matt. We passed by a doctor's office that was raided recently. This is the office here on the right. A small red brick building. Appalachian Medical Clinic. In the parking lot, an older man with a white beard is getting out of a car. There's a doctor now. He stops and looks at us as we pass by. Bucky shakes his head. Nice guy. The doctor is a longtime local. He was respected in the community till he was charged with more than 100 counts of prescription fraud, conspiracy, Medicaid fraud, and more. The bust of this doctor's office was one of several raids and closures that Bucky and his colleagues have spent months working on. In taking down a single clinic... Bucky says you can interrupt the supply for dozens, even hundreds, of small-time dealers. But it comes with a downside. As sources for pain pills have dried up, other drugs, heroin or meth, move in to fill the void. Bucky couldn't talk about the clinic case or how it was built. It's making its way through the courts. But the way most drug cases are built in Wise County and across the country is through informants. 99% of the cases, you couldn't work without informants, period. The war on drugs has exploded the use of informants. How it works, 
Bucky catches a low-level dealer, someone selling a few prescription pain pills or a little bit of meth on the street, and tries to work his way up the chain to build cases against bigger dealers. If you're going to prosecute the devil, you got to go to hell to get the witnesses. That's just kind of the way we have to look at it. Some informants are paid. Others are working off charges to avoid jail time. Bucky acknowledges informants lead a rough life. Yeah, a lot of them would wish maybe they had just went to jail because they're always having to look over their shoulder. You know, and, and it disassociates them to where they usually can't buy or sell drugs anymore. People won't want them around. It's not uncommon for an informant to have to leave town once people start to figure out they're working for the cops. Bucky says working with informants can also be dangerous for the cops. Because they may entrap you and get you killed. They may get you ambushed. They may try to provide you with false information. I mean, I've went into places, uh, known narcotics houses where I knew there was weapons to purchase narcotics. And I'm depending on somebody that the, the patrol unit doesn't want in handcuffs and leg irons behind their car, in the back seat of their car. I mean, it's the most terrifying thing you'll ever do in, in some instances. I caught up with Bucky one day as he was coming out of a courtroom with two prosecutors. Instead of one of his normal disguises, he was wearing his court clothes, khaki pants, a bright teal button-up shirt, and a Scooby-Doo tie. I always wear Scooby-Doo or something to lighten the mood. We slipped into a conference room to talk. Despite the fun tie, Bucky's demeanor was serious. He'd just appeared before a grand jury to testify under oath in about a dozen cases. The day had gone well for Bucky so far. The grand jury signed off on a bunch of indictments, and the judge issued warrants, allowing police officers to go out and make a sweep of arrests. Bucky flipped through a stack of brown folders he was carrying, containing all the evidence, mostly gathered working undercover with informants. Um, the reason that I like doing a lot of my own undercovers is I, I get a little bit better insight as to what the person really is. You know, I've, I've bought narcotics off people that prided themselves that they'd never stole anything. Um, yeah, I'm an addict and I'm selling because I want to make my next pill or my next, you know, gram or my next half a gram. But I'm not stealing off. I do work. And, you know, so when it's learned that this person doesn't want to steal, they're not out committing home invasions, then I can pass that on to the prosecutor and they go, well, they didn't rob us. They didn't cheat us. They don't steal like this one woman. Bucky says she's an honest person, a mother, but she sold him her prescription, a Schedule Three narcotic, in a school zone. He's worried that under the sentencing guidelines, her punishment will be severe. Bucky guesses the two prosecutors next to him will drop some of the charges. They're probably not across the school zone in order to get her sentence down to where it's reasonable, to where we can all three sleep at night on a Schedule Three. Null pros means not prosecute. Bucky believes some people should be treated with compassion. They got a good mother and father. They might be good for drug courts. If they're worth saving, try to save them. But he still thinks that the right place for a lot of drug offenders is jail. Most of the other folders hold cases against people who are caught selling meth or heroin. And Bucky is hoping they get long sentences. He pulls out another folder. This guy climbed in the back of my car, sold me heroin. I'd never met him before, and he had a gun in his waistband. This is a bad man. Over the years, one of the people Bucky and his colleagues have arrested and put in jail is Joey Ballard. 
He's the guy who managed to get sober after about 15 years using drugs, first pain pills, then methamphetamine. When I talked to him in the summer of 2017, he was doing really well. He was living with his mother in Johnson City, Tennessee, working two jobs, driving his new used car. He had a girlfriend and he was looking for an apartment of his own. Things were looking up. Joey said then that he never wanted to go back to Wise County. I hope that I never have to go back over there for anything, to be honest, because I know that I'm going to run into somebody that I know. And if I'm by myself and I've got money in my pocket, like I'm afraid that I might go and try to do something, but it gets easier. It does. It really does. I lost touch with Joey for a while. He stopped answering my messages. I finally saw him again almost a year exactly after we first sat in that park in Tennessee. And when I saw him, he was in Wise County at the courthouse. He looked different. He was skinnier. His clothes were baggy. His face was gaunt. He was wearing blue jeans, scuffed up white sneakers, and a brown Carhartt jacket. He was there to plead guilty to a couple of misdemeanor charges, two counts of driving with a suspended license, another charge for giving a false identity to police. Each charge carries a maximum of a year in jail. He was sentenced to 20 days in Duffield. That's what people call the regional jail after the town that it's in. Joey figured, with the time he'd already served, he'd be out by this time next week. I mean, it could have been a lot worse. I could have got, you know, three years <laughs> all together. So you're relieved a little bit? Yeah, a little bit. Uh, nobody wants to go to jail. I don't care if it's 24 hours. It sucks. That feels awful. <laughs> awful, awful, awful place to be. So you've been there before? Oh, yeah. We talked in my rental car in the parking lot of the courthouse. It was mid-March and snow was falling outside. Well, last time I talked to you, you were doing really well. Yep, I was, and unfortunately, that didn't last. <laughs> Can I ask what happened? Uh, just, you know, you're a drug addict once, you're a drug addict always. It's just hard to, hard to get away from it, I guess. Joey went back to Wise to see some old friends, plus a woman he knew was having a baby. He thought he might be the father, and he wanted to talk to her. It was supposed to be just for the weekend. Then he never left. He was back using drugs, meth mostly. This transition from pain pills to meth is really common and wise. Meth is cheap, and it's incredibly easy to find. It's not the same high, but it's still a high. With meth, it doesn't give you like a euphoric high like anything else. It just... It makes you... It's like if you go out to drink with your friends, you know, it puts you in that kind of cheerful mood, that talkative kind of attitude, where everything's not so bad. Kind of puts everything on the back burner, so to speak. And that's kind of what this does for a lot of people. Does it do it for you? Yeah, a lot. And that's the problem. Like, it takes you so far away from reality, you know, day in and day out, that you don't even realize... Oh, six months has passed. Joey's return to Wise triggered a downward spiral. He didn't have a job. He lost his car. It was impounded. He didn't have a permanent place to live. He said he'd been crashing here and there with friends and acquaintances. And his jaw had been badly broken and wired shut. He said he got punched, wouldn't tell me anything more. Joey told me nothing around here ever changes. 
I've been around drugs from the time I was 14 years old. If it's not one thing, it's another. We went from oxy to just pain pills, on to methamphetamine, on to heroin. Nothing changes except for the drug. That's it. There's no stop to it. There's no way to... Uh, you can throw everybody in jail. They'll bring it in jail. You sound disheartened. Because it, it, it's like a black hole, man. You get stuck in it. You can't get out of it. You can't... When you're always around it... How many times I've been robbed, gotten fights, seen things I never thought I'd see before? And we're in little tiny Wise County. We're not in the city. We're not... You know, we're not some... You know, big drug capital, whatever. But we are. I see more people carrying weapons now than I've ever seen it before. This, this is no joke. I don't think the cops know it. I don't think society knows it. I have been in a vehicle that's been shot at. I've been in vehicles that sh <laughs> that shot at people. Here. Yeah. And you don't you don't see it because we're out in the country. Joey, that's scary. Yeah, it is. It's it's terrifying, you know. And is what it is. I I pray every day. I don't go to jail. And I pray every day. I wake up. This running with the law, the misdemeanor charges, the judge, the jail sentence—none of it stopped Joey from using drugs. One night, a few weeks later. Joey was arrested and charged with possession of meth and intent to distribute, according to the arrest warrant. The police report said the cops busted him as he was eating tacos. He had drugs stuffed inside a Taco Bell bag. Bucky was working that night. Says he sat Joey down. And I told Joey, if you don't chill out and you don't get some help, you're going to die. You're either going to be killed or you're going to die. How was that received? I know it. That's what he said. So, what do you do? A few days later, on the morning of his 35th birthday, Joey woke up in jail, detoxing off of meth. I'd been checking the inmate list at the local jail. When I saw he'd been booked, I left him a message, and he called me back. A collect call from... An inmate at Duffield Regional Jail Facility. I accepted the charges. So I've got my recorder on, Okay. Uh, All right, so how are you? I, I'm sitting here on the bond and can't nobody go it. <laughs> and it's heartbreaking. I mean, sitting I on a bond of $2,500, he had to come up with 10% or $250 for the bondsman. But he couldn't get in touch with anyone who could pay it. And if he couldn't make bond, he'd be sitting in jail till his hearing, six months away. What do you mean? I, I just want to be done with it all. I want to be the one that I was doing so good and I fucked it all up. I should say, Joey was able to call me because I had prepaid minutes on my cell phone so that I could accept calls coming from the jail. But other people Joey knew didn't have those prepaid minutes, and Joey didn't have any money himself on an account with the jail, 
so he couldn't call a friend or even his mother. He didn't even know his court-appointed lawyer's name, and his lawyer only found out that Joey wanted to talk to him when I called the lawyer to request an interview. Eventually, after a couple of weeks, Joey's lawyers got his bond reduced, and they got a hold of his mom, too. She paid $150 to bond him out of jail. When she picked him up, she told him some sad news. His dad had died while he was in jail. He'd been sick for a while with chronic pulmonary disease. Joey missed the funeral. He says he was too messed up to go. A few months later, Joey was arrested again. He was at his friend's house when the cops came looking for the friend. Joey had meth on him. According to the police report, he tried to toss it in the bushes, but it was too late. And back to jail he went. As much as Joey hates jail, the detoxing, the boredom, the bad food, the pull of drugs was stronger. Bucky has seen this kind of thing happen again and again. I'm getting to the point, and I try not to get jaded, but once these people get addicted, I've dealt with them for the last 13 years. It doesn't change. People start on pain pills, get addicted, maybe go to jail, maybe get sober, relapse, and repeat. And once the pain pill supply dries up, people trade down to heroin or methamphetamine. The demand doesn't go away. The supply just changes. Bucky told me about this one day when he was sitting with prosecutor Chuck Slemp at the courthouse. And I don't put anybody down or look down my nose at anybody and want to help these people, but there's a point to which you're like, this is really getting old. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to hurt somebody or, you know, you, your children. And I told one guy, I'll never will forget it, I was at his attorney's. His attorney couldn't do anything with her client. She called me, I set up a meeting, I went and talked to her. Um, to the attorney and her client. And he said, well, putting me in jail for five years ain't going to rehabilitate me. And I said, listen, pal, we don't care about rehabilitating you at this point. We just, the neighbors have got to have some relief. <laughs> and he was that's like, true. well, darn. But that's kind of where we get at it is, <laughs> you know, I don't care if it helps you. I don't care if it benefits you. I've got to have some relief. Your neighbor's got to have some relief, and your grandmother's got to have some relief because she's tired of buying you baloney. Quit. Mm-hmm. And that's when we just, I try to put them in jail when I'm, I'm done with them. You know, screw you. Go to jail. <laughs> We're done. We're, We're tired. done. Yeah. We're tired. But sending all those people to jail creates problems of its own. That's coming up after the break. Over the years, a lot of low-level dealers and people who are addicted to drugs have cycled through Duffield, the regional jail. Duffield houses inmates from three counties, including Wise. Until a few years ago, Brian Caldwell worked as a guard there. When I first started, we had a little over 200 inmates there. And then within my 10 years there, we were up to seven or almost 800. And it was, it just, every day it seemed like you got more and more in. There was more, a lot more coming in than there ever was going out. We submitted a public records request to get the numbers. In the 14 years since the jail was built in 2005, the average daily population of inmates more than doubled, even as the region's overall population has declined. The average daily jail population peaked a few years ago at around 700 inmates and then declined slightly. At times, space was so tight, the guards would run out of cells. Inmates would sleep on the floor in the booking room. 
Guards would pass out portable beds. Well, we called them boats, and it was just a, a plastic thing that kept them off the floor. And we had people in the floors because uh, we didn't have anywhere else to put them. And they were, sometimes there were maybe 50 or so that were just out laying in the floor because we had nowhere else to put them. They were locking up so many people, an expansion to the jail was built in 2015. Working at the jail, Brian would see some familiar faces. He still remembers his first day on the job, running into at least a dozen former classmates. Kind of like, almost like a high school reunion. Uh, it's people I hadn't seen in several years, and it's like you walk through a pod and, you know, you, there may be upwards of 100 inmates in there, and you walk through and you're like, well, I know that person. Like, And they're like, hey, how you been, and all this stuff. It's kind of awkward uh, at first, it's a big step from being friends to then you become that authority figure where, you, you know, you have to enforce the rules. To Brian, it seemed as though nearly everyone there had been charged with a crime that somehow connected back to drugs, dealing, shoplifting, child abuse or neglect. The county prosecutor corroborates that. He estimates the vast majority of cases relate back to drugs or alcohol in some way. Many prisoners detox in jail. In Duffield, and in most jails, there's very little treatment, though sometimes volunteers from Christian groups and 12-step programs come in to run meetings. Uh, it seemed like, you know, once they become incarcerated and, you know, they went through their withdrawals and all that stuff, it completely changed who the person was. Um, when they first come in, like, they could have been, you know, heck to deal with. And once they withdrawed and got through that, they were like some of the best people you'd ever meet. But it seemed like once they were released, they would just go right back to their old habits. It was just kind of a little vacation from their habit, basically. And uh, they would get out and start back into the same drug use that they were before, and then they would wind up right back in jail. Did it ever feel like the, the jail system wasn't enough or like wasn't totally working with the people that were cycling through again and again? Right. I think... I felt like it wasn't working for everybody. And, like, I guess you can't really jail addiction to help cure it. This approach of locking up drug offenders, it's also really expensive. The cost of the opioid crisis is hard to tally. So much of the local economy has either been hurt by it or exists in response to it. Drugs keep a lot of professionals in town busy. Lawyers, funeral directors, cops and doctors. But it's a drain on the workforce and on the taxpayer. In the past decade or so, the amount of money that Wise spends on the jail has nearly tripled. Now it's $3 million a year, according to David Cox, who was the county finance administrator when I talked to him. Which is a huge part of our $50 million budget. In fact, a lot of the county's spending relates back to the opioid crisis in some way. $3 million to regional jail. Another approximately $3 million goes to law enforcement, commonwealth attorney, and costs related to that. Social services, $1.4 million. Then there's the cost of running the courts, courthouse security, and a little bit of money goes to the Department of Public Health, about half a million dollars. All this money adds up. As costs are rising, the number of taxpayers is falling because the population is declining. So is its defining industry, coal. The amount of money the coal industry pays the county has plummeted to a tenth of what it was a decade ago. Schools have been closed and consolidated, property taxes raised. All of this has led the county to start considering new ways to cut costs and save money. Inmate costs right now, I think, in the budget is $30 a day. So if we can keep one person out of jail, 
that's nonviolent, it's not a threat to society, we can actually save, you know, large dollars over time. This point is not lost on Chuck Slemp. He's the Commonwealth's attorney, or the county's elected prosecutor. It's Chuck's job to prosecute drug offenders. But even he acknowledges, for too long, the county has had just two main tools for dealing with the drug crisis. Probation or jail. That's all we've got. The first time Chuck ran for office in 2015, he was just 32 years old, ambitious, energetic, and young, a Republican in a conservative county. He went door to door. I knocked on over 10,000 doors across the county to try to talk to as many people as I could while I was running for this office. He asked for their votes, and he listened to what they had to say. Almost every single person said one of two things. It all came back to drugs, and it all came back to you got to do something about those bad doctors. And I can't believe that they locked up Uncle Johnny. Uncle Johnny was a good guy. He needed help, not jail. Which led Chuck to realize, maybe we're locking up too many people. We can't prosecute our way out of that crisis. We can't prosecute our way out of this problem. We can't arrest our way out of the problem or the crisis. So Chuck came up with an idea for a new program. It's based on a similar program, One County Over. Is a little thinking outside the box for, you know, a law and order, crime and punishment kind of guy. It's an alternative to jail. Rather than sitting in Duffield, costing the taxpayers $30 a day while they watch TV, eat Twinkies, and gain even more criminal contacts, let's put them to work. He calls it Wise works. Under Chuck's new program, some low-level nonviolent felons work off their convictions instead of going to jail. We are at a point in time that just locking up an offender, particularly a drug offender, is is not going to work. Individuals who are uh, what's the word I'm looking for, who who are redeemable, maybe have the. We have a responsibility to try to find a way to make the criminal justice system make our community better. If you drive through Wise County, you can see Wise Works in action. People are out fixing the public pool, cleaning the river, even working the front desk at the community college library. Womper Library, this is Jesse. How can I help you? That's Jesse, or Jessica Schuler. That name might sound familiar. She's the woman we met last episode when she was standing before a judge facing 10 years or more in prison for forging checks, grand larceny, and prescription fraud. I caught up with her five months after she appeared in that courtroom. Remembering that day, Jessica visibly shudders. She says when she found out there was a warrant out for her arrest, her whole life changed. She had to find a lawyer, turn herself in. I was a wreck. The whole time, I'd never been in, I said, I've never been in trouble. Um, I'd, and the not knowing, you know, he could not guarantee me that I would just go in and come right back out, that they would give me the bond or anything. You know, I had no idea. And so, and my son at the time was not even a year old. He was eight months old. And I'm sitting here thinking, am I going to miss his first steps? Am I going to, sorry, am I going to miss him walking? But I knew I had to do it, because if I didn't, it would hang over me, and I'd miss a whole lot more of his stuff if I didn't take care of it. In the end, she didn't miss her son's first steps. She took a plea deal. 
Instead of prison, she was sentenced to 1,440 hours of work, without pay, at the library. Jessica says what landed her in this situation was pain pills. She started taking them after she graduated from high school, mostly OxyContin. And so that's how it started for me. And then it just took off from there. And, um, you know, at first you think, oh, you know, I have more of a willpower. This will just kind of be like a weekend thing. And it, it, it doesn't. It never ends up that way. Jessica was hooked on pain pills for about five years till she was in her mid-20s when she finally left Wise and got into treatment. Even though she hasn't taken a pain pill in five years, she still has nightmares about relapsing. I wake up in a panic, you know, because, I mean, that still, it stays with you even after this long. I still, but I wake up panic and just things that I did while doing drugs, I'm still so... Uh, it just, I feel awful for the things I've done. I was not raised that way. Um, that's not who I am, but that's who I was while on the drugs. And, I mean, they took a hold. Jessica worked off her sentence in the library. It took her about nine months to finish. She graduated in June of 2018. She returned to North Carolina, where she'd been living before her legal troubles with her fiancé, her stepkids, and her young son. It scares her to think about where she might have ended up. I mean, it just absolutely terrifies me to think that I could be sitting in jail right now because I've worked so, you know, you, you hear stories of the drugs being in the jail or, you know, you get right back up with people who are not ready to change. They'll just come in, do their time, go back and do the same thing. And I could be right there going the opposite direction. Alternatives to incarceration programs are nothing new. Cities and counties across the country have been experimenting with different programs for the past 30 years. The most widespread example you might have heard of is drug court, where participants get court-supervised treatment instead of a conviction in jail time. Wise County has a small drug court program as well, but Wise Works is not drug court. Participants don't get as much in the way of treatment. They do get a felony conviction. Wise Works is punishment. It's about paying restitution to the community. And participants pay a high price, thousands of dollars in court fees, hundreds of hours of community service, sometimes more than 2,000 hours. Many people also balance full-time jobs and raise kids on top of that. In Virginia, convicted drug felons lose their driver's license. That, of course, makes it incredibly difficult to fulfill a work sentence in a rural area with no public transportation. One expert I talked to said, yeah, compared to two years in jail, this program might be lenient. But 1,700 hours of community service is no picnic either. The former jailer, Brian Caldwell, recently took over as director of Wise Works. He now works hard to keep people out of jail. I have to be there to uh, support them, to encourage them. But I also have to be there to have that firm hand to make sure they show up for work and they're held accountable to what they're court ordered to do. In his new office, a tidy collection of comic books and Star Wars figures fills the shelves. There's a whiteboard on the wall listing the 30 or so participants, the number of hours they're sentenced to, and the number of days they've spent out of jail. Brian updates the list regularly in his small, neat handwriting. Every now and then, when a participant stops showing up to work or fails too many drug tests, Brian has to bring them before a judge, which is what he did on a snowy spring day in March. Brian usually dresses casually. It helps his rapport with participants who might... Look at a suit and tie, and they think, oh, who's this guy I think he is, or something like that, you know. 
But on court days, Brian changes out of his fleece and into a suit jacket hanging by the door. All rise. To appear before Judge Chadwick Dotson. So who do you want to call first? Uh, can we start with... Uh... On this day, Brian has three struggling participants. He calls forward a single mother who pleaded guilty to selling Schedule II narcotics. It's not her first time before the judge. Raise your right hand. He asks her, why have you been missing work this time? When I missed those days in February, I had a four-year-old that ended up with flu A. Her kid was sick, she tells the judge, and there wasn't anyone else who could stay home with her. I am trying my best to get on track and do what I need to do. I have zero help. The judge listens for a while, takes it all in. Are you telling me that being a mother is hard? I am, yes. (laughs) And I, I... I don't expect you to have sympathy for that, but it is very oh, hard. And it's even harder when you're a single mother. I do. But, but here's the deal, the judge says. You got out of a two-year jail sentence, but only if you complete this program. Well, this time, the first thing I said to myself when I saw your name on the list was, why shouldn't we just go ahead and remove her, make her serve that time? Um, I'm not going to do that. This time, but the next time I'm a here, note about Judge Dotson. Do he wouldn't agree to an interview, but a lot of people around town told me the years have changed him. He had a reputation for being tough on crime when he was the Commonwealth's attorney in the early 2000s. One person close to the judge told me he used to refer to drug court as that hug-a-thug program. But now he presides over drug court and Wiseworks, and his lectures to participants are stern but caring. Here's what he told the woman who'd been skipping her wise works job to care for her kids. If you will get this thing done and get it behind you, you will be amazed at what you're capable of. If you're able to do this and raise kids and handle everything that's associated with that, there's nothing you're not able to do once you get this behind you. You don't have to worry about this anymore, but this is gonna have to take more of a priority. On this day, Judge Dotson gave her another chance and spared her from jail. WiseWorks is gaining traction. More work sites are signing up all the time. Nonprofits like soup kitchens and health clinics and government agencies, too. The program is a year and a half old. There are currently 25 participants. 27 people have graduated, and another 27 people have been removed from the program and ended up serving jail time anyway. The program has spared would-be inmates a combined total of thousands of days out of jail. And the county saves the cost of feeding inmates and providing medical care. And then there are the savings that come with all that free work, about $200,000 of work at minimum wage. But most people, like Joey Ballard, do not get to work off their sentences. The jail is still nearly full, and some people in Wise are coming to believe there has to be a better way to deal with the drug epidemic. But they don't necessarily agree on what that better way is. Those who are addicted... They need Christ. There's a certain segment of our community that feels, well, if you're going to kill yourself, just go ahead and do it. We're not going to beat it by cutting off the supply because these people will take a gas can and huff it, okay? Or they'll take a can of Cool Whip and huff it. Once they're addicted, they're addicted. I can't tell you that this is absolutely the only thing we can do, but I can tell you that it's the only thing I know that's left to do. That's up next on the final episode of the season. This episode of The Uncertain Hour was reported by Caitlin Esch. 
The Uncertain Hour is produced by me, Chrissy Clark, and Caitlin Esch, along with associate producer Peter Balanon-Rosen, production assistant Annie Reese, and digital producer Tony Wagner. Ben Hethcote is our video producer. Mixing and sound design by Jake Gorski. Additional production help from Lyra Smith. Our podcast is edited by Catherine Winter. Satara Nieves is the executive director of On Demand at Marketplace. Deborah Clark is the senior vice president and general manager. Special thanks to Nancy Fargali, Tommy Andres, and Betsy Streisand. You can see photos of Wise on our website, marketplace.org, or on Instagram and Facebook. We also produced a video introducing you to Wise and the people who live there. It's on our YouTube channel. We're Marketplace APM on all those platforms. Thank you.